0: Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, my name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Given
1: the strange and turbulent times that we are living through, Kurt and I decided to reach out to some of our favorite behavioral science researchers and practitioners to get their take on the novel
0: coronavirus pandemic that is shaking the world. These special edition episodes will explore a variety of different aspects of the crisis and our response to each of those aspects through a behavioral lens. We know that you may feel overwhelmed by the crisis already. It seems
1: every news story, every social media thread, Every phone conversation that we have is focused on some aspect of the pandemic right now. While the news and updated information are essential, we're going to take a different tact. We want to try to understand the science behind our reactions and our behaviors and how science can help us cope and move beyond the
0: current crisis. In each episode, we talk with a different behavioral science expert and get their best thinking on an aspect of the crisis. So sit back, take a deep breath, and listen to our special series on behavioral science and the coronavirus pandemic. Mariel Beasley is the co-director
1: of the Common Sense Lab at the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University. She works on applications of behavioral research, primarily in the financial services sector and public policy arena. She holds a Master of Public Policy degree from Duke University. Her previous work experience includes a variety of nonprofits and charitable foundations, and we are excited to have her on our show. Mariel, welcome to Behavioral Grooves.
2: Thanks
3: for having me.
1: We are excited to have you. Yes. Can you start just by telling us a little bit about the kind of work that Common Sense Labs does?
3: Sure. So um, the Common Sense Lab was founded about four years ago uh, in partnership with MetLife Foundation and, and now with support also from BlackRock Um, Social Impact Fund. And we uh, really focus on um, basically partnering with financial institutions, uh, whether they be nonprofits um, or banks, credit unions. It's really sort of a broad financial service providers, uh, fintech, to use behavioral science to sort of improve products and services and experiences to help low to moderate income households um, save more uh, manage their cash flow, decrease expenses, uh, save for the long term, uh, and when possible, increase increase earnings.
0: Great. So, what help us understand the relationship between Common Sense Lab and the Center for Advanced H- Hindsight?
2: Yeah, uh, it's great. one of these. You know, we yeah. see you guys
0: both at Duke. Can, you know, what's the what's the relationship there?
3: Yeah. So um, we are like a, a nesting doll. So um, (laughs) a little little complicated, but so the Common Sense Lab sits within the Center for Advanced Hindsight, which of course sits within the Social Science Research Institute. Which sits within Duke University, so.
1: <laughs> which is somewhere in uh, the Carolinas, within, yeah. and somewhere in the United States, and it's on the blue planet Earth. And oh my yeah. gosh, okay,
3: every everything connects. It's
0: true. It is. Oh, very good. Thank you. That was that was one of these questions that was just lurking in the back of my brain that I just like. All right, I got you here. Let's
2: ask. All right.
3: Yeah, yeah. But it's but it's really the Common Sense Lab that that within the center is what focuses on the vast majority of our applied research in financial decision-making and very much specifically with a focus on low to moderate income households.
1: Yeah. So you've been focused on pro-social work for a long time, but what got you interested in behavioral science?
3: So um, I have always been a little bit um, somebody who likes to get into the weeds. Um, I really like details. Uh, I like to also like kind of play around with things and try to fix things um, on and and sort of really scope in narrowly on that. And that's, that's sort of always been uh, sort of an aspect of my personality for better or worse. And um, so behavioral science kind of gave a toolkit for how to think about and process that, um, you you know, essentially that concept, that idea of digging into the weeds and trying to figure out, well, what happens if I change this or what happens if I change that? Um, And then of course I, I, Am very much from the sort of research side and thinking about like measurement and testing and learning. And um, I think behavioral science also just really helps explain why we see what we're seeing, gives us tools for how to make changes in that, and then also fits into a process of measurement and evaluation um, to be able to quantify, quantifiably understand with the, you know, the the strong use of randomized control trials and, and things like that within that process.
0: Fantastic. So given the crisis and given that your work with, um, you know, these financial institutions and looking at low and moderate income households, what are you seeing? What are some of the, the insights or the, the not insights, the, just the pieces that you're seeing, this, observations that you're seeing out there of what's going on? And what are, what's some of the research that you're working on around this?
3: Yeah, sure. So um, I think just one thing off the top is that low to moderate income households are getting hit really hard. Um, and that is something that's interesting because it's not just that they're getting hard, hit hard financially. They're also getting hit hard, um, through health impacts. Um, and so they're really kind of getting the double whammy. And, And part of this is, you know, financially it's, I think it's really clear about how they're getting impacted, you know, hit and impacted by that. And it's a lot of the industries that, that are closed are industries that are populated by a lot of low to moderate income households. So, you know, uh, restaurants, tourism, a lot of those are low-wage hourly workers um, who are essentially now also, they, you know, teetering before and now um, with reduced hours or without a job at all. So they've been hit extremely hard financially, um, more than other a lot of other um, sort of segments of the population. They've also um, been hit hard health-wise, um, mm-hmm. and part of this there's a couple of reasons, right? So a lot of the research on COVID nineteen and a lot of the what we're seeing is that you know, people who have other illnesses um, are especially at risk when they, you know, get COVID-19. And that's, uh, we know that uh, poor health, co- you know, poor health also correlates with with lower income. Um, and that's, there's all kinds of reasons why why um, that might be. It's lack of access to healthcare. Um, it's, you know, all kinds of other um, stress factors, like all of these things that, that sort of create the system where people who are Tend to also ha- um, sort of be at risk for for poor health. Um, but on top of that, the so uh, like not only are like if they get it, they're more likely to fare poorly on it. Um, or they're not not only if they if they get it, are they more likely to actually um, have severe cases and and have more critical cases? Um, they're also more exposed in many cases because when you think about a lot of the essential services positions where people can't socially distance, those mm-hmm. happen to also be low-wage hourly workers. The grocery exactly.
0: store clerks, the delivery people. Okay.
3: Exactly. Um, and so now, like, not only are they at higher risk for critical stuff, they're higher risk for exposure, um, but they're also being impacted financially because their hours are decreasing in some cases or, you know, completely uh, closed altogether. So so just off the off the cuff, you know, off the, off the top, we're seeing that... Just LMI households are being hit hard, and um, and it's stressful. But people are kind of responding a little bit differently. I think the other thing that we're really seeing is that not only are people sort of respond, not only are LMI households responding in all the ways that you'd expect uh, around these, you know, income shocks and and whatnot, you know, relying on savings, relying on family and friends, um, increasing debt, skipping bills. Like, not only are we seeing all of that, um, there's a couple of other kind of more unexpected things that we're seeing um, in our research and also research from, from some of our colleagues. As mentioned, we partner with lots of different um, financial service providers, and some of those are fintech providers. And one of those partners is Capital, which is a um, goal-based savings app. And one thing that they found that was, that was very cool that, we've, that we found um, with them is that as, um, that basically since the beginning of COVID in the U.S. and the news really increasing... Um, they saw an increase from 2.5 percent of their new users setting up emergency savings as their goal, that has increased to 15 percent of their wow. new users, which is a yeah 500 percent increase, um, which is huge. And so right now, a lot of people are are thinking that you know now is not the time to be encouraging people to save. Now is not the time to be talking. You know, people are in crisis. Nobody has any cash et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the thing is, is that this is incredibly salient and people are really thinking about putting money away for, and it may, maybe isn't for when that unforeseen emergency happens in the future. It's I'm in an emergency right now and I need to be putting money aside for next month.
1: Wow. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I, I mean this is really interesting. We've talked to uh, a variety of people in the social sciences and behavioral sciences. And one of the one of the things that keeps coming up, like Wendy Wood and Christina Bicchieri, you know, talk about okay, this is a cataclysmic fresh start, right? This is the great opportunity to to fresh start. But yeah. there's also a lot of, of decision research on making big decisions in really troubled times like this can be very stressful this is a this is a hot state you know not a cool state for decision making so just what what are your first thoughts about this uh for uh, this tremendous increase in the number of people who are increasing their savings as new users
3: good idea i mean i think it's a good idea (laughs) but i might be i might be biased i mean we're all biased right (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) um so so I think it's, I think it's a great thing, Um, but but I think that it's also important to understand that it might be a reframe of what savings means Um, because a lot of times people think about savings as this sort of accumulation process where you put money aside and it grows and grows and grows until one day you need it. And I, I think that what we'll see as part of this um, is really a shift in basically seeing savings as a cash flow management tool.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: where it really oh, is much more of this liquid in and out flow. Um, and that it's savings is not something that is set aside and used in some future that's unknown. It's that savings is, this is what I'm putting aside to make sure that it's that, that my spend stretches, that I'm able to like stretch what I currently have um, and then pull it in from savings. And it might be, and that it's sort of this this process that goes in and out with a much more sort of higher cadence or frequency. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. So I think that's that's one thing we see. I think um, there is a little bit of some interesting challenges though, you know, when we think about the, you know, the stimulus checks that are that are going out, thinking about this, you know, um, in these big moments of uncertainty and and things like that, I, I we do sort of have this natural reaction to sort of um, Protect right. So, so we are seeing people are cutting back, even if they're, um, even if their income hasn't been impacted yet. People are trying to save, even if they haven't been impacted yet. Um, but we also know that the economy uh, actually likes spending. Um, so, this is going to yeah. be a little bit interesting in that a stimulus check is usually. Um, You know, from a macro perspective, the idea is that it's to have more people spending money in the economy to help stimulate that economy. And I think what we'll see is much more of the micro reaction of, great, I'm going to save this for later. Uh, It might not have the macro uh, impact as expected. Going
0: back to this reframing and and the aspect of saying how how they're viewing savings now moving forward, is there a compression in the time frame to a little bit degree in in what you're saying, because it isn't going to be the savings that I will only touch 30 years down the road. This may be a savings that we dip into next month, next year, five years from now, that this is a more fluid piece of it. And is that part of the potential reason why people are doing it more?
3: Yeah, I think, I think that's definitely part of it. I think people are starting to think of savings not just as long-term and short-term, but also as, you know, which is that, oh, saving for retirement in college is long-term, short-term, You know, then there's like intermediate, which is saving for the down payment. Short term is like saving for an emergency. But I think what we're also seeing is like micro savings, Mm. which is savings that will be used in a month. Okay. um, And potentially even planned to use in a month. But people are sort of setting it aside in order to be able to then have it in a month, um, particularly in a moment of high uncertainty when they don't know if and when they'll get their next check.
1: How do people typically frame uncertainty or uh, saving for a rainy day? Do do you have any research that can speak to what that rainy day might look like? Because this this is, this is unforeseeable in the biggest sense, isn't it?
3: Yeah. And it's, that's a great question. It's tough. Um, We have some research that we did a few years ago that um, is only tangentially related, but I'm going to talk about it anyway as an example here, Um, that where we essentially were trying to prompt people to think about savings as a way of saving for a rainy day. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and so we actually tried to prime them with an unexpected event as a way to encourage them to put money into savings. And so, you know, essentially we sent out emails to folks. This was an opportunity they were going to have to, um, to set up a savings account and make a deposit. And we sent out an email and we said, you know, you might have this unexpected expense in the future and you might want to have some money set aside. And that's, and we sort of gave that prime to some people, but not to others. Interestingly enough, uh, that backfired. Oh, wow. Yeah.
2: L- Wow. And it
3: wasn't just that it was a null effect, like it backfired. It did statistically significantly worse than the control that did not prime it. And oh my yeah, and our, our hunch, right? We don't know for sure exactly why it backfired. Uh, it could have been, you know, a, a rare event. Um, but our hunch for why it backfired is because, and this was, you know, a few years ago, but people have often, um, there is sort of this emotional this, you know, it, it feels really bad to pull out of your savings, right? Mm-hmm. It feels like a failure to just have to spend out of your savings. Um, and so because we were actually priming with an expense and basically saying you you might have this unexpected expense that will happen. And instead, because people don't naturally have, or at least they haven't had sort of a savings account thought of as a cash flow management tool,
2: mm-hmm. and it,
3: Instead, think of it as oh, you put it aside and it accumulates and, and it grows and an X, Y, or Z, and you don't touch it. Um, I think that what basically people were saying, well, man, you're telling me I'm going to have to spend this. I should keep it in my checking account. That's our oh, hunch. Wow. We don't, you know, we we haven't been able to to uh, do further research to validate that, but that's our hunch. So, so this question about I think that this like going through a crisis and people getting used to the feeling of pulling out of their savings continuing to put in savings when they can pull out and sort of that higher level of liquidity is going to help shift that sense of to a true rainy day savings. Because I think even now, the current frame, the way people currently think about rainy day savings is still you put it aside, you save, it reaches $2,000 or $500 or whatever the rule of thumb is that people are using these days. And and that's what your emergency savings is, and there's no real good rules about how you use it and how you refill it. Mm. So I think that's going to be a, a frame shift that that will come.
0: Well, and it, it's it's interesting when you talk about you know people's perception of pulling out of savings as a negative, right? That's something that you you don't do, and given the situation that we are in, and the widespread impact that this is having the the social norm of that maybe may change because every you know 30 or 40 percent or whatever percent of the population that is being impacted by this may have to do that so hopefully it, it does reframe things in a more positive perspective for the long-term benefit of everybody as we're moving forward on this um, yeah. Yeah. what what other things are you seeing in in the way that people are responding to this that are interesting from your
2: perspective?
3: Yeah. So another way um, that this is actually um, something that um, our colleagues at Commonwealth, which is a nonprofit that focuses on like research and innovation in, um, in the financial services domain. So uh, we collaborate with them on, on a number of different uh, projects and and a lot of work and um, I just had a, a call with them very recently where they were sharing out some very early findings from some of their work, which they do a lot of interviews um, and and sort of they they do sort of repeat interviews with with the same population to see you know how their financial stability is changing over time, and so they have been interviewing some of these folks before COVID happened and now they they're interviewing them after and one thing that they check in on is financial stability. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, like in each of these and how people feel about their financial stability. And something that's been really interesting is that they're seeing this trend that um, a lot of the folks that they're interviewing, you know, obviously not everybody and this is interviews, but um, but every like a lot of the people that they're talking to, they are seeing that folks who are really on the edge before, um, you know, before everything went, you know, off the rails. Yeah. Um, people who are really sort of struggling day to day and and basically felt very unstable financially, that now that COVID is happening, they're doing downward comparisons about their financial stability to other people, um, either that they know or that they hear about in the news who, you know, so even if their hours have been cut some, if they still have some hours, they're actually feeling more financially stable. Wow. And even if and people who haven't had that cut in hours, they're also feeling more So even, you know, when you asked them two months ago, they would have said, Oh no, I'm feeling very financially unstable. You ask them now and they're saying, yeah, actually, I'm I'm feeling pretty financially stable. But then they're following up with, you know, because I at least have this and all these other people don't, or oh, my brother lost his job. Or and so they're doing this social comparison around, you know, financial stability. And what's interesting, though, is that it's a fairly consistent downward social comparison. It's not an upward social comparison, Um,
0: which which isn't normal. Normally, we always compare upward, as opposed. It's it's why you know pay increases only have a you know. big satisfaction increase for a really little bit because all of a sudden you're going, yeah. Oh, but wait, there's that there's that next level up there that I can compare myself. I thought to. I was moving from Sam's club to country club, but <laughs> it looks like I'm still at Sam's club.
3: Yeah, exactly. There's, there's, there's some of that great research. That's like if, um, where people would rather be the highest earner at a, at a, a job, um, but making, you know, less money than being a lower wage worker at a job, but making more money. So it's yeah. that, yeah. that, that sort of, Social comparison is, is fascinating. It's just really incredibly fascinating right now. Is that so many folks are thinking about the fact of how lucky they are, and that yeah. then is making them feel, you know, lucky in a in a global pandemic is is a relative term, right?
0: So. <laughs> we laugh, but I mean, there's, there's truth yeah. there, right? There is there's, there's yeah. a there's a there's a kernel of truth in in all of that.
1: So. Yeah.
3: So it's super interesting.
0: Uh, would
1: you mind uh, sharing your crystal ball with us? I'm sure that you've got one. And so we're just asking that you get it out for just a minute. And, you know, cause we've had a lot of conversations with uh, behavioral scientists about what they think, what might carry into the future? What are the norms that might, that are being formed now that might go forward?
3: Yeah, so um, I think we're gonna see a lot of um, reduced spend, even coming out of this, not just because, um, and I think in a couple of ways, not just because people are, it's going to, even once things open back up, people are going to be scared. It's not just that. Um, It's also that people are going to realize that they didn't need all those things that they were subscribed for and paying. And, you know, there's lots of great research on there on adaptability and how quickly we can adapt to things. And so I think that people who are downgrading now is a way to cut costs and cook more at home, and they're, you know, adapting to that lifestyle, that it's going to take a while for the spend to go back up to where it was, even once, um, you know, restrictions are out. So I think that's one. I think another thing is that we are going to see a, a, a real increase in savings rates in the recovery. Um, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of evidence that shows that after recoveries, uh, like, you know, during recoveries, people, uh, it, because it's so salient, people people save more. I think similarly with stocks, right? This is, we saw this coming out of uh, 2008 that there were, people were really unwilling to do risky investments, um, just a lot. And I think we're going to see a very similar thing uh, where people are kind of trenching in their savings. They're their, this, you know, they're trying to, essentially trying to to regain control in a, in a time that's been pretty um, unpredictable for wow. a lot of folks. So I think we'll continue to see that
1: play out. It's interesting because we've talked about the the time it takes to create social norms uh, with with a bunch of different people, and I and I, I find it particularly interesting that we have a relatively short amount of time. This isn't like the Great Depression or World War II, where there were years of rationing and and living with a lot less. Um, it, we went through the two thousand eight uh, downturn and. People are back today. You know, uh, twelve years later, they're lot, heavily invested in risky investments. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but from what you're seeing now, you think that, that these trends might continue, uh, at, at least possibly even generationally, that they might might influence <laughs> influences.
3: <laughs> <laughs> generationally is 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 a lot. Um, I you know I think. It's a great question. I, my hunch is that it won't be as long as, you know, Great Depression or anything like that for, for things to get back to normal. And my, I think that part of that is also social norm related, right? So social norms uh, are kind of communicated at a different rate these days than they have in the past. And this is because of so much of our lives are now visible Um, and social, you know, we're connected to so many more people that we sort of see and get sort of the visual feedback on uh, on norms, and that's I think one reason why um, spend has accelerated so much in the last um, you know decade is because you know we talk about this a lot in in the in the financial space is that all of the social norms um, and social proof that we have around financial decisions is all in the spend domain. That's mm-hmm. what we see, right? That's all we can see. We don't see what people don't spend. Um, And, uh, and so I, I, my hunch is that that will also then when spending opens back up, it'll take a little while to get there, but because of the connectedness and because so much of our lives are still on social media platforms and Instagram and like, you know, there's, there's the great research from, um, that was done in Canada on lottery winners where like when you win the lottery, it makes your neighbor more likely to file for bankruptcy. (laughs) Um, yeah this is like the social norms of spending and so I think similarly it'll people will it'll take a little while to get back up there but we will certainly get back up there as more people are you know on social media posting the things that they're spending it'll it'll take us back so I don't think it'll last as long as some of the other effects but but it will be a while and and people will dig in and people will save because just you know it's, it's saliency and it's availability bias and it's this Concern that like this terrible thing happened yeah. and you have groups of people, you have one group of people that is like, man, I'm so glad that I saved up and I feel prepared for this and I feel okay. And, um, and there's another group of people that are feeling it and wishing that they had savings and, and desperately looking for other things. And, um, and I think that that availability bias is going to continue to play out that once as they recover, they are going to be saving more.
0: Well, and today, right, uh, I, I'm not sure what the research, you probably have a, a better idea of this, but the I, I know there's research out there of people who, the percentage of Americans who couldn't even afford a $500 car uh, expense that it, it doesn't, yeah. they don't have that amount of savings. Um, and so it, it seems like you're saying that hopefully after this come, that we get out of this, that at least for the short term, more people will be saving and putting up these emergency savings accounts that you talked about earlier. Um, in the yeah. long run, because of all of the other factors that you talked about, you know, the descriptive norms of going out to social media and seeing people spending and you can't, you don't get, you might have some normative things, of I should save, but they're not being visually seen because you can't see that. You know, is that um, I guess my question is really going to think about what is it that could help that in the long run if it is only going to be a short term gain? Are there things that we could be doing and putting things in place to help those people maintain that savings for a longer time frame than maybe just the whatever that short term period is after this crisis is done?
3: Yes. Short answer is yes. Um, <laughs> long, long, longer answer is um, yeah. I mean that's 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 essentially what we do at the Common Sense Lab is we are partnering with financial institutions, employers, um, gig platforms to actually design better and and so basically better ways to get people to easily save and and maintain savings. Um, and and so I think from our perspective, one thing that is um, a, a, an opportunity in this is kind of going back to some of the comments about fresh starts and um, you know the the research around the fresh start, um, this is a high level of motivation to start something.
2: Yeah. And
3: so if financial institutions and employers and you know people who are touching people's finances either by providing their paychecks, by managing their money, um, if they are able to actually use this time to create better products and systems that make it easy to put money in, makes you feel good about keeping money there, um, and you know, creates a little bit of friction about pulling it out when, when it's not necessary, um, that is going to essentially you're going to be able to have this natural increased motivation to get people to make these you know, one-time decisions as they are coming out of this in the recovery that hopefully will then stick. And that's, that's basically exactly what we do. Um, and so, and, and I think a classic example of this is the whole reason why people are even talking about pulling money out of their retirement savings to cover, uh, some of the emergency stuff is because like retirement savings is actually a really good savings product. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, It's
3: very well designed, right? Many, many companies you're opted into it, like you're defaulted into it and you have to opt out. You, um, you know, it has a, a match, which gives you sort of a, an anchor amount of what you should be putting in there naturally, it sort of gives you a sense of, oh, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be contributing. Um, and it comes out of your paycheck. So it's pretty painless, because we budget to our paycheck. Um, and so it's just a really smart design from like a behavioral science perspective, It's a smart design savings product, we don't really have any good short term savings products that are designed as smartly as this long term savings product.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so
3: if, if, however, we're able to um, essentially create... And so that's why you have tons of people who have retirement savings, but have no short-term savings. And so if we're able to actually use this time and realize like, we got to do something about short-term savings as well um, and create some of these better designed products and services, then I think it'll be sticky.
1: This is certainly a time when more people would be willing to jump in and take money out of their long-term savings. Are you seeing any of that or do you have any thoughts about that?
2: Oh, lots of
3: strong thoughts. Um, (laughs) um, yeah, so, so, you know, obviously with the, the, the COVID cares act, um, which has sort of lifted restrictions for, uh, the, the withdrawal penalties, um, and basically saying, if you need to withdraw, you can withdraw with no, with no penalty. Um, uh, our, my my issue with with framing this as making a withdrawal with no penalty is that it actually obfuscates the fact that it's a huge penalty withdrawal, <laughs> withdrawal from your 401k right now because right. the last thing you want to do is pull from your retirement when the market's down, right? You don't yeah. want to pull from the market when the market's down. You are essentially paying, you're essentially like, you're, you're, you're getting 70 cents on the dollar. Um, right. And so it's like a 30% yeah. penalty rather than yeah, great. You don't get your ten percent penalty. Instead, you have a thirty percent penalty if you're withdrawing right now. Yeah. Um. And so framing it as no penalty is is not a helpful frame. Um, <laughs> that's my my thoughts there. Um. And and I think on top of that, like it's uh, I've I've seen a lot of companies um and employers who are proactively reaching out and letting and just to let their employees know that this benefit exists, right? And so they're saying just FYI. Um, you know, you, there's no longer restrictions on making withdrawals from this, which um, we know a lot about how people interpret information. um, Mm -hmm. And it's very easy for something to be interpreted as an implicit recommendation. Yeah. And so, and on top of that, we also know from, there's um, evidence out there that shows that the employer is one of the few trusted institutions. um, And actually one of the most trusted institutions uh, in people's lives, uh, which is, Interesting, but um, (laughs) another topic. That's right, we wanted
2: to realize on that. Um,
3: But essentially, like, so a message from your employer telling you that this is an option for you that has no penalty um, can very easily be interpreted as a recommendation where, you know, instead of paying a 30% penalty on that cash, for some households, it might make more sense to look at credit options to cover that. Um, It might make more sense to look to see are they in a position where a HELOC might be a good option for them or you know some other way to cover that gap rather than a you don't have emergency savings great go to your long term savings
0: yeah and and interest rates are at uh, still super low super low rate right now so the the ability for people if they can get a loan of some sort of advance as opposed to pulling out of a stock market uh, long term investment like your 401k the, the financial, the, the the smart thing would be to do that. But again, I think there's probably some emotional reaction. And as you said, you know, who do you trust and the way that people implicitly uh, take that information and that communication and saying, oh, well, this is what I should be doing because that's what they're telling me. So good insights on that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Uh, I'm curious about what it's like to be a practicing behavioral scientist and CEO working from home, <laughs> sheltering oh. at home. Well, how, are, how are you faring and
3: um, what's it like for you? Uh, so again, that downward comparison, I'm very fortunate. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, you know, I think it's one of those pieces where, you know, I know the research and stuff that should help me and my team uh, be really productive, which is, helpful so you know we are constantly trying to do things to keep people connected to keep people motivated to demonstrate trust in our employees and our staff because you know we we think that that's important for for happiness and productivity
1: yeah can you talk about that how are you building trust how are you how are you helping foster that environment right now
3: yeah great question um and i you know uh who knows how successful we're being in it but um so so and and it it is one of those things where, um, you know, we, we try to check in with everybody on the team um, and make sure that uh, everybody's talked to somebody um, and that, that in that week, even just like, you know, we have lots of zoom calls and and partner things, but we, we sort of go through the entire team every week and make sure that somebody has just talked to them to see just how they're doing. Are they okay? Mm. Um, But then also similarly um, just, Sort of reminding people about their autonomy in their own research um, and being able to make decisions on their partnerships and projects and and showing that we trust them. And also just allowing for an incredible amount of flexibility where if people are, you know, having a hard time working from home, like, great, let's, you know, brainstorm ways to help them feel better about it. Does it mean that they want to not work from from 2 to 4 p.m.? that's fine. We'll find other times that that we can sort of think about the work. Um, And also, you know, we're not asking people to report hours. You know, we read these horror stories about companies that are like requiring their employee and they're like installing spyware and checking to see how long they're on, you know, social media and not doing productive things. And for us, we're, we're trying to demonstrate just that we, we trust people, we care about them. Um, uh, It's fortunate we're as part of the center. we are. Uh, um, you know, Dan Ariely is the is the um, director of the center, and um, you know he's been great about giving little gifts to folks in the lab uh, to sort of personalize their home office space, um, and just a lot of things to to just remind our employees that we care about them not just because of the work that they do, but because of the people that they are.
0: Yeah. Did you guys have a uh, work from home or distance working? opportunities before or is this all brand new
3: um so we are we've always been sort of a more um flexible workplace uh again fortunate in that with uh sort of academia and research it's it's stuff like you've got a computer you've got internet a lot of the stuff you can you can do from just about anywhere and i would also say like the travel schedules of our team are such that you know any given day that you're in the office maybe half of the people are there anyway. Yeah. Um, so, but that being said, so so people always had, had sort of the opportunity to work from home sometimes, but we really did encourage people to come into the office, you know, at least sometimes and um, to, because it's so important on that camaraderie and, and actually building trust to have those face-to-face. So, you know, we make sure that all of our calls are zoom calls because we think it's important to have the video um, and we have lots of like partners who do not have that in their, in their company culture to do zoom calls. And we, we l- really leverage social pressure to, uh, yeah. them to turn them on. Um, but we found that that's just really helpful.
0: Yeah. There's, there's been some real interesting research and, and I'll have to look at it and see if we can get in the show notes uh, about the, the impact of not only, um, you know, voice, which is again, really big in communicating emotions and various different things, but the visual aspect of, of Zoom. And so I have a couple clients that I work with where it's not the, they just, they'll do a web X, but they don't turn on the video. And, and it's really in this time uh, you go, well, just turn that video on. I, I want to see you guys. It's and and I think there's a, a lot to be said for that. and And it is one of those social norms though, that we used it before and that's how we did it before and now it's starting to shift and I think that that will be a a bigger shift moving forward as as this comes out of it at least I hope so because again the ability to be able to see somebody see how they're responding uh is always an important aspect I think in building as you said trust and just even understanding did, are they understanding me am I coming through because if they're looking with that space glare that I get when Tim talks, you know, it's one what? of those things. I'm sorry, did you say something, Kurt?
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I totally, totally agree. And um, my team, we all also encourage each other to be, like, um, you know, to actually even, like, be social detractors when there's um, a, a norm where the other people on the call don't have their video on. Like, yeah, we have been on calls where it's, you know, two of us from our team and eight people from the other team, and we're the only two that have our videos on, and we keep our videos on that whole time, and we are really adamant, and we always do I've been on calls where I'm the only person on that, <laughs> that has the video on, and I keep my video on, and I, Bravo. And and we've had a number of times where, you know, after about five or ten minutes, somebody from the other team will turn their video on. And it's like, yeah. we're getting there slowly. But that, we're getting there. that
0: actually happened to me earlier today. So it was one of those calls <laughs> where I had, and and there were two of us that had the videos on. And then, you know, a couple minutes in, somebody else did. And then by the end, it was, you know, everybody almost did. Um, there's we, we had some other conversations with people who have talked about the actually getting to know their coworkers a little bit better because of this, because again, we're allowing a little bit more grace in, in things. And so you're seeing people's houses, you're seeing where they work, but you're also maybe seeing their pets or their kids and various different things. Are you seeing some of that same in, in your work?
3: Very much, very much Um, both with, you know, internally, but also with our partners. Yeah. Um, which is a really nice way to build camaraderie. And, you know, I think I was on a call the other day where, you know, two people were like, oh, I have that same headboard. Um, <laughs> so, you know, maybe sometimes it's getting too personal, but, <laughs> um, but I, I do think it, 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 it's really nice. And it, it does sort of create this, you know, you're, you're getting a peer, like a peek into somebody's life. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's also really interesting though, because I wonder if it like, As it kind of continues and there's norms and things like that, I do wonder, like, is it going to exacerbate income inequality and, Uh you know, where, you know, you might be having, you know, peering into people's houses that you're like, holy cow, that's your house. And, you know, other people, maybe a more modest uh, (laughs) apartment. Uh, well,
1: well, my wife and I are are doing the comparison whenever we're watching the news. All of it seems like almost every single reporter in the field who is not actually in the field but in their home or commentator is in front of a bookcase. And Katie and I are totally distracted by by what's on their bookcase. <laughs> and oh, or, or that's a really nice bookcase. Oh, that's kind of a shabby bookcase. Jeez. <laughs> we get really judgmental about that stuff.
0: Well, um, and I so. do think there's that there's another aspect of this where you've seen some celebrity who are trying to do some good, you know, public service things in here. And there's a backlash because there's, oh, shelter in place. Well, yeah, you sheltering in place. You have a, you know, 10,000 foot mansion with these beautiful views and you can stay there. I'm stuck in a 900 foot apartment and you can see some of that backlash coming out just from some of those announcements that are going on. So I could see where that may happen just in, again, looking at differences of, of people and where they live and how they live and yeah. all sorts and, of things.
3: And going back to the, that um, the paper that I was talking about, um, that's keeping up with the Joneses and it's the, you know, the lottery makes you more likely to, you know, if your neighbor wins the lottery, you're more likely to invest in high risk stocks. You're more likely to file for bankruptcy, you know, all of these things. Um, But one of the reasons is because of increased spend and, but it's increased spend on conspicuous goods. Um, Uh So it was only that you were increasing your spend on things that you could see that your neighbor had purchased. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, which is interesting that now that we're peering into people's houses, um, it's sort of (laughs) increasing the visibility of what people spent and buy.
0: I didn't even think about that, but yeah, that, that new boat or the new car in the driveway. Uh, but now we're getting to look inside and going, Oh, I like that bookshelf. uh,
2: Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. That's a cool piece
0: of art. I want something (laughs) similar. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Would, would you be willing to comment as a leader, what you think about productivity of your teams right now?
3: I think that, we should be thinking about long game, not short game. Um, And I think that we should be thinking about not what is, how are we, you know, maintaining levels of productivity that were prior to Um, the, you know, the shutdown and COVID and things like that, but instead think about how do we cultivate this as a moment for, you know, both again, increasing that relationship with your employees that is going to then lead to greater productivity in the future, um, even if it means that it's a lower productivity right now. Um, so that means being forgiving. It means being accommodating to crazy schedules and stress and anxiety and all of the other things that are happening right now with people. And I think it's about being, and and also like encouraging employees to use some of this time for themselves and their personal interests. And um, because it's, you know, we need to be thinking about mental health of our employees and being able to protect that um, will greatly pay off dividends in the future. Um, But we need to have that long range site and not focused on, are we meeting our issues? You know, are we meeting our quotas? Are we meeting our, you know, promises for this month? But instead, can we think about it being longer than that?
1: Kurt and I were heartened by a conversation we had with the vice president of US sales for a multinational firm. And he actually said we might need to think about redundancy in the corporate world to have more people doing one job because because it's complicated. And as opposed to focusing on how can we be more efficient, it might be loosening up the efficiency standards, which was a dramatic thing for a sales leader to say.
3: Yeah, that's great. I mean, I I think that's perfect because I think this is definitely a case where we are seeing um not just with ourselves but also our partners where like if somebody's out of the office for two weeks who's because of illness or because they're caring for someone else who might be sick um that like if we want to be able to continue to do stuff we need other people who can easily like step in and do that work which means that they've been on the project this whole time and they've been dedicated to that if if you want to keep stuff moving, going forward, and etc. So I, yeah, I love that idea of like, you know, we've had such an emphasis on, like, streamlining. And, you know, and there's, there's a lot of benefit in, in nimbleness that sometimes helps with small teams. But I completely agree. We showing, you know, a, a, an expertise that is one person thick is, is has cracks in that these days.
0: Yeah. And, and again, these Unprecedented times kind of show some of those cracks in in how we had been been thinking about that. You look at just the the healthcare system, you know, and again, US having the lowest beds per capita of any of the industrialized world. And because we've been super efficient and that works great until it doesn't. And then when yeah. it doesn't, it it really shows. So yeah. I, I think the same thing can be said on a number of these things and productivity and and redundancy within organizations so
3: it it reminds um, me just quickly it reminds me of those um of some of the stuff on uh, um like surgery rooms scheduling Mm -hmm. um where basically um hospitals have found that they are more efficient and productive when they actually don't book all of the rooms when they keep one room that's always vacant and it is that having that that because it's you'll always have these moments where you need it, and if you don't have it, then it throws off your entire scheduling, and then there's so much more work to go back in and create the new schedules and the adjustments and things like that. That the benefit of you know being fully scheduled um, actually ended up being more you know more costly and less cost effective than always keeping <laughs> one room empty.
0: Yeah, A- again, some of these non, if you would. Think about it, you kind of you get it, but they don't make uh, immediate sense of going, well, what do you mean? I, we should definitely have everything filled up because that's how we earn our money or yeah. uh, different pieces. But then you throw in these contingencies and, and these ath- other aspects and you go, oh, yeah, now I get it and make sense. And I, I think some of that is being uh, shown with, with the crisis in, in a number of different areas, obviously some of the financial stuff that you guys are working with, but I think in just uh, work life in general uh, across the board. So. Yeah. Thank you so much,
1: Mariel. You've been just absolutely terrific. Uh, this has been a fabulous conversation and we're grateful for
0: your time and your insights.
3: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Welcome to the special edition grooving session where Tim and I groove on some ideas and concepts that were inspired by our conversation with Mario. All right, Tim, what struck you from this conversation?
1: Well, there were several things. uh, and. Of course, overall, it was really great conversation. It's always great to talk to really bright people and who really care. And Mariel absolutely fits this, this category of being really sharp and really thoughtful about the way she goes about life. And I I, I just have to just kind of give her a shout out on that. Uh, but the first thing that I wanted to talk about was uh, microsavings and how they're basically, it's basically non-existent.
0: Yeah, it was non-existent before this. And this just showed how little Many people, particularly lower and middle class people, have a savings safety net.
1: Right. We, we just right. don't. Right. And I wonder how closely this is tied to the social norm that we don't talk about money. So if, if you know, for instance, let, let's say I have, let, let's say that my uh, uh, micro savings for short term uh, troubles is is zero. And and let's say you have $1,000. Yeah. Um, but we both spend at the same... Let's say we both go out to the same restaurants and we both spend the same way that our lifestyles are basically the same. We have no idea really about each other's particular situation.
0: Yeah. What was the story that your dad, uh, you, you mentioned about a birthday gift of oh, G.I. Yeah, Joe? That's right. And on my 10th birthday, Jim
1: just had his birthday 10 days before, 11 days before he gets the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip. And I'm like, dad, I got to have a G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip. And dad said, we can't afford that. And I'm like, hey, Jim, Jim Fowler's got one. And he said, we don't know what his situation is. Yeah. Just because they spent the money on that doesn't necessarily mean that they're financially sound or not. You know, yeah. actually he wasn't ma- my dad wasn't making a judgment that they were they were not, but he was simply saying our situation is we're not going to spend the money
0: on that. Right. And we don't know what Jim followers situation is, because we don't see that. We see the consumption side of things. And that's what we talked about in this too, as well, right? You go on social media and you see the vacation, you see them drinking Mai Tais and new dresses and swimsuits and the new cars or television sets, all of that always gets published. What we don't see on social media is your savings account. Do you have a hundred dollars in it? 500, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, a million, we don't know. We could be spending the same amount and have the same outward spending habits, but our saving habits are invisible. So there's no social norm around Reinforcement, there's no reinforcement of that social norm.
1: You know, and I, I've talked to uh, researchers about this in the past, and I remember talking to Ron Kivitz, uh, who uh, is an Israeli national, grew up in Israel, and he said that pretty much in every country around the world except Israel, he said, people won't talk about money at all. He said, in mm-hmm. Israel, it's not common, but it's acceptable. He yeah. said, it, you know, it's okay. And I wonder if it's possible to change the social norms around this, it doesn't sound like it's a DNA thing. It sounds like it could be culturally dependent. I wonder if we could change our culture to make it more acceptable to talk about. You know, I'm having trouble with keeping my short-term savings up, or, um, or man, I, I reached my short-term savings goals, or I, you know, my my 401k is doing great, or. I don't well, know. and
0: again, maybe some of that can be technology driven, where it's the hey, just added you know contributed to my short-term savings fund again and a big star comes up and that gets more and more and there can be pieces of social media that reinforce some of those saving habits that we have to help people do that but i think it's really interesting that that first part that you talked about the idea that we don't have a short-term savings net that Many people are feeling that given the situation, you almost have to wonder, too, how much that's going into some of the protests that are going on out there about opening up the economy. Those people who are facing this dire aspect, they've been laid off, their hours are cut, their spouse has been laid off, whatever the, the situation is, and they don't have A fallback and unemployment doesn't necessarily cover it, or the short term stimulus that was just sent out isn't enough. And so they're feeling this heightened anxiety and feeling of being afraid because I don't have anything to fall back on and I have to pay rent, I have to buy food, and I don't have any money to be able to do that. So we got to open up this economy. Because there's another crisis going on that isn't just this health crisis. Which won't necessarily be solved by just
1: putting people back to work. Uh, I, I mean, that's a, that's a key part of it, right? But until we change the social norms around what is acceptable and what's, uh, what's reasonable and what is expected of me, what, what the descriptive norms are, mm-hmm. this is what people are doing. They're actually saving and when we get to that point that will probably make a better difference. Kurt what else uh, what what did you want to talk about? What was uh, important to you? Oh, this I discussion? want to talk
0: about a ton of things, of course. No, and no, we okay. talked about we talked about social norms. One of the things that Mariel said was that social norms are complicated. Mm, um, yeah. And they're complicated by a couple things. So obviously the social media that broadcasts out and we talk about that. That we've talked about that the idea that consumption is very out there but savings is not. But we're also getting this peek into people's houses with the COVID-19, right? So Mm -hmm. we're doing Zoom and various different things. And so all of a sudden, you would think that, wow, at this time, savings might be more of the descriptive norm. But actually, you're going in and you're seeing, wow, they they live in a really nice house. Or (laughs) look at that cool TV they have. Or wow, uh, whatever it is that you're seeing through the Zoom or WebEx or whatever that is that you're connecting to them. So you're getting another additional social norm uh highlighting all of these conspicuous consumption things
1: right or these inconspicuous consumption because it's happening inside the home
0: right she was that used to be inconspicuous because you didn't get invited to to their home so you didn't see that nice painting that they have on the back and various different pieces yeah
1: she was concerned that this might exacerbate income equality or perception inequality yeah inequality and you know i'm surprised at how many, first of all, I'm surprised at how many bookcases we see among journalists and reporters and interviews and everyone that gets interviewed. We always see the big bookcase behind them. Like I have behind me. Exactly. Exactly. Not, not me. I don't have a bookcase. I don't, I don't read. You You just have all the
0: books down by your
1: feet. I know. uh, (laughs) You know, that's where they are. But the, Uh, I think it's interesting for me, my own observation is the number of bookcases that kind of look the same, like the number of rooms that we're in. There's not a big difference. I'm not seeing, oh my God, that is an amazing bookcase. (laughs) I'm not having that experience. I'm actually seeing a lot of similarity between people who I would imagine are extremely wealthy and those who are You know, I don't know, of course, I really don't know what their income is, but people who are not so wealthy
0: uh, get interviewed. But do you look at the bookcase and see how organized it is and how full it is? Like that's one of the things I've been noticing. I've been noticing these bookcases where it's books are. Strewn and they're they're pushed in and they're on you know they're not all upright they're like laying flat and others are around them and they're all over and then you see these others that are perfectly set up and they like look curated. really nice and yeah. different and and then there's somewhere you're going wow they have a lot and then there's somewhere there's like a bunch of empty spots on their bookshelves and you're going oh what kind of person well, is that so, I, 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 all these. All these inferences that we're making about people based on their bookshelves, or at least maybe we're not making. I'm making about people no, based I am on too. their bookshelves,
1: and it's it, these judgments are happening automatically. We're yes, not having to do anything to say now. Oh, we're going to get to see a new bookcase. I guess I should judge it. No, it happens completely automatically. It's totally system one thinking. I'm judging you by the way your bookcase is organized, the kind of books you have on your on your bookcase, how. how how attractive the books look? Yeah, uh, how attractive are you trying person? to read
0: the the titles? I always am looking at there, particularly if it's kind of a little bit boring, and I'm looking back behind. I'm trying to gauge Constantly. is that is is that thinking fast and slow? Is that what what is that?
1: Wow, they've got a lot of Civil War uh, books back there. I wonder. Geez, I would have never guessed that of that seventy five year old woman. You know, it's yeah. There you go. Warm-off. Okay, well, <laughs> we got. Yeah. <a> <laughs> we digress. <laughs> Uh, but I want I want to just say about social norms the complications. It is, and you you talked about this earlier. It is this big dichotomy, this big contrast between what we're doing in social media versus what uh, and what we used to do in conspicuous consumption, and now we're getting this insight into this inconspicuous consumption mm-hmm. that um, that I wonder if it's going to have a leveling effect or if it's as Muriel suggested, it might have the effect of exacerbating uh, income inequality.
0: Right. We'll see. So another piece I thought was really interesting is this idea that nimbleness, that efficiency may be overrated, particularly Mm -hmm. in times of crisis where, wow, it was really good to only have three people doing this job before and really working a lot in order to get it done. But now we see, wow, one person goes down and it throws this whole system into chaos because we don't have redundancy and the ability to cover for that lost person. We've seen this and heard this from other people. Just the way that business has been run to optimize every last penny may not be the best way of operating a business. Particularly if we think there are going to be these elements that come into play. It may not be a a virus, epidemic, pandemic, but there are going to be shocks to the system that maybe that idea of having efficiency for 8, 10 years and then failing because we don't have redundancy when that shock comes might not be the best long-term idea that we've had as a capitalistic society.
1: Right. I've worked for companies with international offices. Mm -hmm. And uh, in one situation, I was looking at the productivity of the American operations versus the European operations versus the Asian operations. And the American operations were were the most uh, productive in terms of the dollars invested by the company. There was the greatest output by the uh, by the American workers. Uh, f- close Followed closely behind by the Asian work, uh, workers. But the Europeans were were somewhat behind that. And I remember thinking, but they're just as happy. They have higher taxes. They're actually, their take home is actually less than that of the American workers. Yet they're plenty happy. They are, they love their jobs. They really are pa- just as passionate about what they do. All of my personal interactions with them were terrific. And they still did great work. Mm-hmm. And, and I realized that there could be economic implications to taking uh, to taking jobs and changing things up, right? To, mm-hmm. to saying, well, we used to hire five people to do 100% of the work. Now we're going to hire eight people to do 100% of the work. Um, and that might mean we have to charge more or that people earn less and all kinds of, there's all kinds of economic implications. But it just makes me wonder, could this allow us to make some shifts to to, you know, give up on the nimbleness a little bit and think about redundancy, getting back to something Michael Bowden
0: talked about. Right. You wonder how the American ethos would accept that, because at this point, there's this belief of the freewheeling, capitalistic, greed is good, Gordon Gecko type approach that we have, and it would take a mind shift, a, a cultural Shift in our our thinking about that. I think there is part of that that's happening. I think there's there's pockets that that's happening. You see organizations that are the they're now incorporating as what is it socially conscious corporations or whatever mm-hmm. it is where right. they're they're not necessarily beholden to the the. St- the shareholder, but to the stakeholders, uh, which are the community and other pieces of that. And that has taken off in the past few years. So maybe this will help in making that transition come faster. I don't know, but I do think there's a lot of quarter over quarter focus of profits and winning and losing based upon hitting your quarterly financial targets at any cost Regardless of the personal implications that it has for people or long term implications that it has because you're preparing for the next shock or downturn and people aren't rewarding that in their you know, stock portfolio quarter over quarter. And I don't know
1: anybody that works for a company that is driven by those quarterly earnings that eh. loves it.
0: That's yeah. just so excited about having. The oh, in those deadline. in those companies where that's the key thing and they just yeah. are excited about, oh, we hit our numbers this 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 past quarter. Isn't that awesome?
1: No, yeah, there's constant stress and a lot of pain and anguish that goes along with being on that quarterly deadline all the time. Nobody likes yeah, it.
0: Nobody likes it. and And to that point, we talk about the stress that happens and how that shuts down some of our prefrontal cortex thinking and what that does around creativity and long-term thinking and a variety of others. So it just, it builds upon these things already. So again, not necessarily hopeful, but I guess I'm, I'm holding out hope. Um, not necessarily thinking that, yes, that's what it's going to become, but I would like to believe that we might take some lessons from this and move forward with it. Thank you for listening to the special episode of Behavior Grooves. We hope that you found it interesting and insightful. If you liked it, please let others know. We think that the topic is important and maybe we can help in educating people about how behavioral science can help us all out in this current craziness that we are going through. Also, please let us know
1: if you have any thoughts or ideas that would be helpful or that we could share. You can reach us through the Connect tab on the Behavioral Grooves website at www.behavioralgrooves.com or through Twitter. I am at T. Houlihan and Kurt is at What Motivates. We really do love hearing from you, and this topic is one that spurs lots of
0: emotions and thought. As part of our mission, we want to expand and inform the community of people who think about positively applying behavioral science to life. One way that happens is through leaving reviews. If you think this podcast is beneficial and should grow, we would really appreciate to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast server you use. It only takes a few minutes and goes a long way to boost us in the algorithms that are used to generate search results. Also, please check out the show notes. We are linking to a number of resources articles, podcasts, newsletters that we vetted to bring good facts and ideas around COVID-19 and the coronavirus, its impact and ways that we can help slow down the spread. There is a lot of information that's being pushed out to everyone each day, and we are weeding through it to find good stuff so that you don't have to. We truly appreciate you listening. Now go out and wash
1: your hands.